everybody, and welcome to That's Life, the show where we cannot believe we have to start cooking again, but we do. Good afternoon, folks, and thanks for listening. I am Miriam L. Wallach, blogger, writer, and general manager here at the Nahum Siegel Network. You can find me here every Thursday at 2 p.m., as I hope to bring you a little entertainment, a little news, and a little relief that the life you are leading is not nearly as wacky as mine. Coming to you from the home office of the Nahum Siegel Network on the beautiful Lower East Side, I am joined today by my handy-dandy partner, Avrami. What's going on? Yeah, get that mic, buddy. Still recovering. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you barely slept. Now, besides that, we decided to do an experiment this year. We stayed in Baltimore as opposed to going to Silver Spring. Okay. And I went to the local Nate's Minion both days. Oh, so that's hardcore. It was good. It was good. I we you know a few of us got together. You know, support system. Okay. You know, getting each other up on time and uh, it just it was good. It just it'll take a little bit of time to uh, get back on my game. That's all. So um. So this voice you have right now is that you have been getting up at the crack of dawn for the last number of days. Yeah, and then last night on the bus, and then not eating real breakfast this morning. You know, the whole deal. Yeah, I hear you. I hear you. Well, uh, it's nice to see you. I hope you had a Shana Tova. Yeah, it was very good. Did you do any Dissimanim like we talked about? Um, Yeah, we did. Um, we got some gummy fish heads. Uh, <laughs> we did the apple and the honey. We did some other stuff. No sheep's head. Yeah. Um, You know. But, oh, you know what we had, which was awesome. Let me hear. <laughs> Um, we got some leaks, you know, because yes. one other thing is leaks. Sure. And uh, we and my wife got an idea from a friend of ours to deep fry them. Of course. Why so not? So it's like onion rings. Yes. I had never had that before. It was oh. awesome. And then she made potato leek soup and we put some on top nice. of sides. Yeah, that's going to be something we explore more often. I make I make certain foods on Rosh Hashanah because we do all the simonim. I mean, every single one of them, you name it. We don't have the lamb's head. We do have a fish head that sits on my table while I excuse myself from the table because I will not be at the table with the head. Um, but I make leek barrecas. Hmm. Yeah. That's good. Yeah, they're great. I make leek barrecas and I, instead of um, pumpkin, because pumpkin is one of the simonim, I use butternut squash and I make butternut squash barrecas also. Hmm. So we have that going on. We have the white beans. We got the cabbage. We got the fish. What's white beans? Oh, I it's it's a, it's a something for something. I don't know. We say them all together. The kids like it a lot. We have a good time. And actually, we had a friend over for Yuntif, and he was into it also. It's like we're way beyond apples. We're way right. beyond apples. But it's a lot of fun. And I said that this is a, almost a little bit more complicated than a Pesach Seder because at least the Seder has a Seder. Like there is an order. You follow the order and you go along with it. But this is a little bit of Hefkeros at the table and makes and it's very sticky with the honey but it's all a good time but anyway i'm happy you i'm happy to see you i'm happy you got here safely well, thank, you. thank you for the new uh, headphones i will Yay. not be going home anymore covered in uh, headphones <laughs> <laughs> yeah consider that an early hanukkah present buddy i just uh, want to get that out there anyway if you are a new listener to the show thank you for taking a break from your day to tune in and if you are a returning listener thanks as always for making us part of your day if miriam l wallach once a week is just not enough for you do what Scott Shulman does. Visit me on my blog at DearThat'sLife.com. Friend me on Facebook or shoot me an invite and LinkedIn. You can also shoot me an email at Miriam at DearThat'sLife.com or Miriam at NahumSiegel.com. I will not respond to you during the show as I announce every single week, but I look forward to getting back to you afterwards. Avrami, you got a peculiar look on your face. There was someone over there looking in, looking into the camera. Were we expecting people? Nished. Okay, so what they left. So Okay. Was, yeah. You know, every once in a while, the Mishalachim come come here. Oh, really? Yeah. Looking for not you and not me. <laughs> <laughs> we are not the noticeable ones around here. Anyway, let's go to our favorite segment, 
what does the fortune cookie say? It should say something about um, not eating for like five days after eating consistently for 48 hours. But let's see what this says. Oh, you know, I'm always afraid now that I made this whole big rule about not eating near the board. Okay. People always know what they are saying, just never listen. All right. Not bad. Not bad. I'll take that one. Oh, and I got to clean this up nicely. Anyway, let's take care of some business. It is National Punch Day. Mm-hmm. The drink or? Uh, exactly. The- <laughs> so it is unclear what kind of punch we're talking about. It's either the punch you drink out of a bowl, the punch you do with a fist, or, you know, those little punch tools you can get in, um, in like, Michael's. Martha Stewart makes a killing off these little shape things that you can make out of paper. Right. I don't buy them either. But anyway, um, there is room to be make hill as a result that the kind of punch we're talking about is undefined. So as long as you do one of these three, you fulfilled the mitzvah of the day. By the way, yesterday was National Talk Like a Pirate Day. Nice, right? We do that in our house sometimes. <laughs> but could you imagine had, had I done the entire show in Pirate Talk? No. No, I think you would have not um, archived it, and I think we would have somehow or another lost the show. It would have been bad, and I was about to make a pirate joke, but I decided against it. Anyway, I also want to let you know that there is complete inequality with these national holidays because this Shabbos alone, besides being Shabbos Agadol, there are 16 national holidays. Shabbos Juva. Yeah, exactly. What? Oh, I said Shabbos Agadol? Yeah. That's really Shabbos Shuva. Sorry about that. It's no not, problem. It's not Pesach yet. It's not Pesach yet. I know I've been cooking a lot, but it's not Pesach yet. I don't even know why I have down Shabbos Agadol. But anyway, yeah, Shabbos Shuva. But there are 16 national holidays this Shabbos alone, whereas today there's only one. Uh-huh. I can't figure it out. Um, some kind of a conspiracy. But tomorrow ends certain week-long celebrations that are worth mentioning. It is still National Singles Week until tomorrow. And... National Substitute Teacher Week started yesterday. I imagine in Chicago, they're celebrating, oh, you know, time to go back to school because it's been 100 years day. But um, as a person who spent many years in the classroom, um, I I completely don't understand what the unions have done in Chicago. And frankly, I would skip some uh, Christmas presents if you send your kids to um, public schools. I'm thinking about not not supporting the teachers so much this year. You're going to get hate mail. (laughs) I'm going to get hate mail? I don't really think so. I, you don't think it's crazy? No, I know. It's just they are, you know, once you put a thing out there, whoever's on the other side of it's going to, you know. Yeah, you know what? We're going to have to we're going to have to take a deep breath. You know that Chicago has some of the highest paid teachers in the country starting at salaries of in the 70,000s? No. Yeah. Okay. Come on. Come on. Everybody go to work. Anyway, um anyway, funny things happen all the time. Check out my blog. Crazy follows me everywhere like to let you know that my son Friday night decided that I might be lazy. That's what he said to me. He is all of six years old and he really did not mean anything by it except for the fact that I do have a nasty habit of falling asleep in the middle of Friday night dinner. It happens every single week. I warn people beforehand. I don't know that that makes it better, makes it worse. But anyway, Friday night dinners, I usually finish uh, the meal horizontal on the couch completely unconscious and those are my best hours of the week from you have those sleeps you know what i'm talking about where you have that like power sleep and you're you know ready to take on the world that's me friday night and my kids have friends over for shabbos and i look at them and i say i'm really sorry it's gonna happen it even happened on birthright i fell asleep in a chair sitting up it's just all that energy is finally out and i need to uh regroup but why did my son say it this week i had put my back out last week and uh, it was pretty painful, and I was pretty immobile. And actually, the first day of Yontif, I couldn't walk to shul. But thank God I am much better now, thanks to um, a lot of narcotics 
and the wonderful, wonderful assistance of Dr. Ratz, who is a phenomenal chiropractor. Anyway, um, so Friday night, I didn't exactly even make it to Friday night dinner initially because I had taken so much medication and I was in so much pain. I was conked out in my bed with ice packs and whatever else. So he came upstairs and asked me to come downstairs to, to dinner to, for Kiddush and for Chala. I said, fine, I will come down. So I dragged myself out of bed and I'm sitting there slumped over in a chair and he has no idea I've taken anything. And he looks at me and goes, mommy, I don't know how to say this, but I think you may be lazy. <laughs> And my eldest looked at him and said, really, she's lazy. And I looked at him and my husband, everyone just basically stopped. And I knew he didn't mean anything bad by it. And I looked at him and I said, why do you think I'm lazy? And he said, because you always fall asleep during Friday night dinner. And the truth of the matter is, is that I do. But this week I was really excused. Anyway, (sighs) I've been called a lot of things. Lazy has never been one of them, but I have been called a lot of things. You are listening to That's Life. Live from the home office of the Nachum Siegel Network on the lovely Lower East Side. I'm Miriam L. Wallach here on the stream at NachumSiegel.com, and it is time to welcome my first guest. Rabbi Dave Felsenthal, or Rabbi Dave, as he is preferred to be called, is the director of the OU's Next Gen Division, which works with alumni of OU programs after they have graduated from high school and college. He also directs NCSY Taglit Birthright Israel, which is how I came to know him. He has worked in various capacities for NCSY for almost 25 years, on the Atlantic Seaboard, New York, Central East, New Jersey, and National NCSY. Rabbi Dave is a board member of the Association of Jewish Outreach Professionals, and he and his wife live in Passaic, New Jersey, with their six children. Rabbi Dave, how are you? Awesome, Miriam. How are you doing? Good. Baruch Hashem. I hope you had a good yantif. Beautiful. Beautiful. How was yours? Thank God, but I am happy to be back at work. Is that bad? <laughs> <laughs> is that bad? No, yeah. well, it's Thursday, so yeah, it's, exactly. uh, it's Shabbos. Hey, can I tell you how sick it is that um, I'm worried at this point about what I have to cook for, for Shabbos? But uh, it's all good. It's all good. Anyway, it's nice to finally have you on. I do have a tremendous amount of Hakara Satov since you were the one who brought me aboard Birthright in the first place. and it was, uh, You were able to give me my Birthright experience last summer and although my husband doesn't like when I talk about this, I look forward to my next birthright experience next (laughs) summer. But tell me something. Have you ever been on birthright? Of course. So tell me about your experience, because as people keep telling me, Miriam, just know your second time will never be like your first. (laughs) Well, my first, uh, I'd say, 50 or so times were all very (laughs) exciting. (laughs) But you you haven't been on a niche trip. You've been on the... I've done it all. For the wow. First, I mean, we started as a beta tester for Birthright uh, in 1999, and uh, Birthright didn't actually start officially until after that. And in the first, I don't know, five years or so, I staffed every trip. Oh, my gosh. Uh, um, we only had a few trips around, and so, you know, I, I, was, I went through the trial by fire. So I've done every type of trip. Okay. But once we expanded beyond three trips a, a season, wow. winter and summer... Um, then I had to uh, bring on staff, and and uh, I couldn't. Uh, I can no longer actually staff the trips. Even I have to now just take care of all the details and facilitate others getting to staff and have an amazing experience, which is also cool. <laughs> How many trips are really going each 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 year? Well, this past summer we had 27 buses. It was our biggest summer ever. Unreal. And right now we're in the middle of registration. So if everybody on the, who's hearing this call goes to israelfreespirit.com forward slash Miriam. <laughs> <laughs> is that what that is? That'll <laughs> work. <laughs> That's <laughs> then, funny. Uh, you know, and register, then uh, we'll have a record winter. <laughs> let's, talk about what, let's talk about the trips that are available this, this winter. Because I think that also people don't know 
that there are trips that go on both in the winter and in the summer. Mm-hmm. So what are the trips that are available this winter? So we have our standard trips, which are classic trips, and those are for um, students who are 18 to 22. Okay. Um, and they're usually focused on a certain college or a group of colleges, and we have them from colleges all throughout the United States, all the way from Los Angeles through Chicago down to uh, Baltimore and uh, Virginia and Florida. So uh, we've, uh, we've got a lot of those. And then we also have uh, classic trips for 22 to 26-year-olds. Mm-hmm. And those, um, you know, those, again, also are December and January. Um, we even offer a February and March for those who are, uh, who are brave. What is it? Want... Why is that brave? Well, February is brave because the winter really hits. March, actually, it starts getting really nice. So right. if you... March would actually be a smart time to go. <laughs> <laughs> well, I will tell you that when we were at the Dead Sea and it was 115 degrees... And the uh, the clock behind us reached fifty degrees Celsius. I did take pause for a moment. I really <laughs> that was that was sun heat. That was like you know center of the sun kind of a moment. But um, so as far as niches, like I mean, I know you you ran a niche trip, which right. was Shakespeare in, in Israel, which was a phenomenal phenomenal trip. The first time we had done that. Um, this winter we have tour de Israel, which is which that is sounds- like tour de France. It's a uh, bike tour of Israel. Wow. Yeah, and it's uh, we're very excited about that. It's a brand new trip for us, and that will be going in late February, so that it'll be uh, warm enough to have a good bike uh, right. tour. And uh, we also have our Yachad uh, trip for uh, those who are developmentally disabled, right. and we have our Jack's Twelve Steps trip for those who are recovering from uh, addictions. Wow! You know, when I heard about that trip, I was absolutely, um, I was absolutely stunned because while I would imagine there would be a Yachad trip, and I would imagine there would be a this kind of a trip. To me, there was something very realistic about the Jack's trip. There was something very um, authentic. I don't, I don't even know if that's the right word, but it was as if somebody was saying, we really get the youth of today. One of my highlights was joining a Jack's trip um, and doing a, uh, a meeting on the beach together mm. with them. And uh, that was that was it was a beautiful experience. Wow! I, and uh, and their hearts were like totally into it. You know, one thing I noticed about um, about our birthright trip that is consistent with all birthright trips is the bar bat mitzvah program, the bar bat mitzvah opportunity. That um, I didn't really appreciate how huge it was until we experienced it ourselves when we were in a Shatora and people on the trip, participants who had never had a bar bat mitzvah, were able to stand up and go through a ceremony of sorts and take upon themselves a Hebrew name that many of them did not have, and some of which I helped come up with, which was an incredible moment. Um, And then you had everyone expressing what this moment meant to them in many different ways. And something that was personal to them, something that was unique to their spirit, to their character, to their personality. And one person got up, and, and by far, we did not have a from trip. And I know Israel Free Spirit does offer single-gendered tours. Mm-hmm. And what would you say? I'm sorry. We will have some trips for both um, men and for women only this winter. Wow. And another niche we're also going to have is um, a media trip yeah. for for participants interested in journalism and reporting, filmmaking, documentaries, photojournalism, and and Birthright actually gave us extra money to uh, put into that trip to make it a uh, upgraded trip. Really, what called does it, that mean? Well, it's called Israel's Untold Story, 
And uh, they gave us, uh, I think, about $18,000 in extra funding to add, uh, to add um, elements to the trip that will, be, uh, that will uh, let them explore these uh, innovative activities in their field. Now I really want to go. Okay. Um, yeah. You, you, that's hard. That's hard. <laughs> Sorry. That's, I mean, way to dangle the carrot. But anyway, um, getting back to the Barbot Mitzvah program, we had one person who got up. And again, this was not a, you know, this was not an Orthodox trip. We were not looking for Orthodox participants. We weren't touted to be that kind of a trip. It was Shakespeare, you know, birthright Shakespeare. But one person got up who had come from a from home and clearly was struggling with her uh, Judaism. And she said that she had a Bat Mitzvah when she was 12. And frankly, it meant nothing to her. And standing up in, at this moment after we had just gone to the Kotel and gone through the old city and done a number of things and standing in Eishat Torah with a group of people who have quickly become her mishpacha, she really felt connected. And I, we, were all, we were all taken at that moment by different, um, different admissions, I guess, by diff- from different people as to how significant this was in their lives. And while I didn't appreciate the magnitude of that moment, I can only imagine that a person like you who has been on 50 or so trips, that you've seen this before and you get it. It's, it's an amazing experience. The, the birthright, the, the bar mitzvah, the bat mitzvah ceremony, it, we, it just comes better and better. But even, even when we first started with it, we saw right away that this was something that really resonated with the participants. Like you said, some of them have had them before, but it didn't mean anything to them. A lot of them don't have Hebrew names. And just like you got to help them pick out a Hebrew name that was really meaningful to them and changed their lives. I mean, just to share with you one of these unbelievable moments, um, on one of the trips towards the end of the summer, after they got back, two of the boys from Michigan decided to land in the airport and drive right back to Michigan. And they were offered by their staff and by their peers, you know, places to stay so they could sleep over and not drive right back, but they didn't listen. And they hopped in a car and drove right back. And as I'm sure you can tell, uh, there was an accident on the way back. And it was pretty serious. Um, And thank God they're both fine. I mean, they've got a lot of uh, recovery to go through. But one of the boys um, named Alex, and the other one named Daniel, so, you know, they were both not interested in having bar bat mitzvahs. Um, and Daniel, actually, who was, um, who was one of the two boys um, who had the most serious uh, part of the accident, um, so Daniel, uh, last minute, right before the bar bat mitzvah ceremonies, decided, I want a bar mitzvah. Mm. And he and his parents both said that because all of the students on the trip and all the fellow alumni were praying for their recovery using his he- new Hebrew name, oh. that he really feels that that, that made the difference. Wow. And, uh, yeah, amazing for this time of year wow. or any time of year. That is, yeah, that is, I mean, this is, <laughs> this has been a, a challenging week across the board in many different situations uh, in terms of people tragically losing their lives. Um, and unfortunately, there have been a number of stories since last Shabbos. Um, this is, but, you know, this is uh, definitely the week for, for stories like that. Um, just, to bring, just to bring people back, because I know there's always a question of eligibility. Who is eligible for a birthright trip? Okay, so if your name is Miriam Wallach, you're eligible <laughs> as long as your husband lets you to lead a trip. <laughs> However. <laughs> I appreciate that. And my boss, by the way. My um, boss would like me to be so busy that I can't lead any birthright trips. But that's, uh, that's another story for another day. Um, if you're 18 to 26 and you've never been to Israel on a peer trip um, since uh, ninth grade and on, eighth grade is a, is a little fuzzy. In eighth grade, if you went on a community bar bat mitzvah type trip, you're still eligible. 
Really? Um, mm-hmm. New rule. New uh, change to the rules. Like it. Good rule. I'm sorry? I'm saying that's a good rule. Yeah, yeah, because yeah. they want people to be able to go again if they just went in a bar bat mitzvah trip. Right. Well, so the experience you have when you're 12 or 13 is nothing like when you have it when you're 20. 100% correct. Right. And, um, yeah, so they're eligible as long as they haven't been on a peer trip. If they've been there with their family, they can have been there with their family 10 times for, for family simchas. But if they have not yet um, been on a peer trip and experienced Israel in that manner, then they're eligible for birthright. And as long as they're Jewish. Right. What is, um, what is life like post-birthright for our participants? I think that my relationship with my participants and that of uh, my better half on the trip, Sasha's relationship, like our group collective closeness, the fact that our, um, <clears throat> our Facebook page is still very active and we're looking forward to getting together, Hoshana Raba, and we've already gotten together and people are meeting and doing different trips together. And we're, also st- we're all just staying very close. But in real life, I don't know that that happens for everyone. But what does birthright provide for that kind of continuation? Okay. So, I mean, as far as the trips with OU Israel Free Spirit, that is very typical um, because we take wonderful, high-quality staff members like the two of you. And when a staff member just doesn't go for a free trip, but they're going because they really, really want to make a major impact, not just now, but on the lives of the participants. So then we have some amazing follow-up going on, all sorts of good stuff. Birthright also provides, though, for anybody who wants to uh, continue their trip in some way or shape, something called Birthright Next, and in New York, Birthright Alumni. And these are programs that provide classes and learning learning Hebrew, subsidized trips to go back again, a wonderful program where if they'd like to invite some friends over Friday night, Birthright will subsidize the cost of having them over for, for a meal, um, and you know other, other similar programs to, uh, to try to keep them going and keep them connected and, and getting them reconnected to the community. On top of that, um, most of our trips also have reunion Shabbatones and reunion um, nights out in the town in, in New York and et cetera, et cetera. Gabriel Porton, who was our um, Israeli madrich on our trip, said that he wants to have his own Shabbaton of anybody who has ever been on a birthright trip with him. And I said to him, I'm like, what would that mean? He's like, what would that mean? That means there'd be like 400 people over for Shabbos. I'm like, okay, you know what? Maybe we need to plan this out a little bit before we, uh, before we go further. But let me ask you something. In your opinion, with the, the numerous years, and the, the length of time that you've been involved in birthright, what do you think is the biggest misnomer people have? I can tell you my opinion what, you know, when I came back and people were asking me certain generic questions that they assumed was typical of every birthright trip and that I said did not happen with us. What, but from your, from your vantage point, what do you think the biggest misnomer is about birthright? That's a hard question. Um, I mean, a lot of people don't think it has a lot of impact. I find even the trips not run by Israel Free Spirit, where the education level is not the top priority as it is with us. I mean, just to give an example, 17% of our students extend their trips for educational programs versus 3% for the rest of birthright. Mm. But I find the impact on the students from all of the trips to be tremendous and that I'm constantly hearing stories and, and, and actually meeting birthright alumni and the trips have totally changed their lives and made them much, much closer and much, much more connected to the Jewish community and to Judaism. So the impact of 10 days in Israel by itself is, is tremendous. Right. And I think that people don't understand the, uh, the um, strength of that. I thought I thought that also there was a um, a study that came out of Brandeis, mm-hmm. right? There was a study that came out of Brandeis about the long term impacts 
of decisions that people were making in terms of who they would marry. And people who had gone on birthright um, were, were, I don't even, were committed. It's over, yeah, it's over 10% higher. Committed to marrying within the faith as opposed to marrying without because they had been on the trip. Mm-hmm. It, that, that to me is a staggering number, considering the fact that we have so many birthrighters who are going back to their secular colleges in their rural communities and they're keeping connected is whatever they did personally. And, and, it's, and it's a struggle. It's a struggle for our kids who are, quote-unquote, FFBs, right, from, from birth and go out onto college campuses. And people have been in yeshiva their entire year, their entire lives. And I've heard from them personally that even though they've been to Israel for the year and they've gone to yeshiva, et cetera, they go out into, you know, a mainstream secular college that's not a YU, that's not a Turo, that's not a whatever, that's not, you know, um, Nary Sral, and, and all of a sudden, what? They're, they're faced with real life, and it is a challenge to go to Minion every day because that's not what everyone else is doing. You're used to being in a world where everyone is doing that. Mm-hmm. And one of our niche trips is a JLIC trip, which is Jewish Learning Initiative on Campus, which is the OU's program where we have couples on 16 college campuses to help, be, uh, to help make a strong community and be their, their rabbi and rebbitzin on campus for these students and to really keep them connected and keep them growing while they're on college campus. And we run uh, JLIC uh, niche trip as well where students who are from modern Orthodox backgrounds who are going to college campuses want to reinvigorate themselves over winter break. And because of today's economy, a lot of them did not get a chance to go spend a year in Israel. This is a, this is a great opportunity for them as well. So let's talk about next gen for a second, because I'd like to take that as an opportunity. It's almost like birthright next is the next gen for birthright. Am I, am I saying that correctly? You're doing good. <laughs> okay. So let's talk about what next gen is and what and from the OU and what it offers, you know, different people on campus. Okay. Um, so just recently, a few months ago, the OU um, divided into three main areas of programming, um, Israel programming, uh, community programming, and next gen. Next gen includes NCSY. Um, and in my area of focus is the director of NextGen is everything after high school. So we have an alumni program mm-hmm. headed by Rabbi Yeshua Marchuk, who I know is a, uh, a big fan of yours. Yeah, and somebody <laughs> else I owe a tremendous amount of Hakara Satov too, right? <laughs> <laughs> he was the Shadchan in this case, right? <laughs> so under his direction, um, we have a whole department of staff who are following up with our alumni as they go to college campuses, getting them care packages for the holidays, making sure that they're getting all they need to have a strong Jewish life on campus, connecting them to the resources and the staff on those campuses, be they from, from the left or the right or the center, or you know, whatever we can connect them to to help them have a better experience on campus. Um, we also have a couple regions where we have full-time employees that are following up on the students from those regions in Chicago and in North Jersey this year as a, two new initiatives. Mm-hmm. And we... And we have a monthly newsletter that they get and wow. all sorts of great uh, initiatives to really help them feel connected and to continue to grow on campus and to know that they're, that they're still cared about. And all of that is under Rabbi Marchuk's direction. Why do I feel like everyone at NCSY is a lifer? You've been there for 25 years plus. And what can I say plus? Oh, much plus. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for always Not a problem. Time. Not a problem. Um, so you've been there, you know, for a while. And Rabbi Marchuk is a returnee. And it just seems to me like people and, and I am... Um, an NCSY alum, though I don't work for the OU, but I'm happy to promote anything you guys are doing. It just seems to me that, that again, with that Hakara Satov kind of feeling or that commitment to what NCSY stands for, that people who work in it come back. 
Yeah, I mean, all the way, uh, all the way from uh, uh, Knuckles' brother Nate, you know, and right. uh, the uh, the Hall of Fame uh, NCSY <laughs> advisors from in those days, all the way through today, where we have advisors who are mysterious nefesh and they just care about helping their fellow Jews, and uh, they give their everything, and that comes across. And when a high school student today sees that someone really cares about them with no strings attached, you know, that doesn't happen anywhere else, and that doesn't happen every day. And that creates lifelong relationships and lifelong friendships and a lifelong impact. How many people from uh, Birthright who have been le- leading trips for Israel Free Spirit are also also people with NCSY backgrounds? I'd say about half. Huh. All right. There is a crossover. You're looking for the same kind of person. Yeah. Um, most of our trips are college trips. And so we find staff who are professionals on campus to run those trips. So it has, they have built-in follow-up. And so, and about half of the professionals on campus are also NCSY alumni. Um, the rest of our trips are all run by NCSY alumni. How many people, um, oh, sorry, I shouldn't say that. What if people who are listening want to become trip leaders? How do they go about doing that? They don't all know Rabbi Marchuk. <laughs> they would contact uh, Scott Schulman at uh, Schulman, S-H-U-L-M-A-N, the letter S as in Scott, at OU.org. Attach a uh, resume because Birthright makes us show that our staff are eligible, and then he'd be in touch with them to uh, to talk to them about different ways that they could staff a trip. You know, by the way, just to go back to the question I asked you before about the misnomers of Birthright trips, you know, w- we were under, uh, I shouldn't say that, people who are under the impression that it is either a party bus or a party trip would be shocked to see the real learning and the intensity of that kind of a trip as it's going on, to the extent that when we got into Yerushalayim and we were sitting in the lobby at one point, um, one of our birthrighters came over to us and said that she is so happy, to use her words, she is so happy that this was not Cancun. And I looked at her and I said, I don't get it. And she said, this was supposed to be spring break. Everyone told me it was going to be spring break. She's like, how wrong they were. She said, I have had such a real experience that going on this trip has made me understand how much I love Israel. She's like, and how proud I am to go back to my parents and tell them all the things that we did, specifically because we took it seriously. And that, to me, is one of the best parts of of this experience. Because, you know, when you say that Birthright is giving all of these Jews an opportunity to have the gift of a lifetime, which is a free 10-day trip to Israel— There are people who abuse gifts that they get every single day, and there are people who take gifts to heart. And those who take these gifts to heart have the real birthright experience. And to me, I I love the fact that we advertise our trips as maximum experience, less fluff, the opposite (laughs) of a party trip. Right. And still, we have been getting record applicants uh, growing very fast each round. And, uh, you know, it's just wonderful to see that there are students out there who really do want something more than just a party out of their trip, and uh, we're very happy to provide those. You've been listening to That's Life on the Nachum Siegel stream. I'm Miriam L. Wallach, joined by Rabbi Dave, Rabbi Dave Felsenthal, the OU's Next Gen Division Director and the Director of NCSY Taglit Birthright Israel. By the way, the tagline Taglit, explain that to me, because that was, is that an addition? That's not an origination. No, so actually, Birthright was originally called Taglit. Um, it's only Birthright Israel for, for us in the, uh, in the diaspora. Oh, that is interesting. I didn't realize that. And Taglit has its own inner, inner, inner meaning. It, it does. 
Um, and that's a uh, and that's uh, a good question, but well, <laughs> I have to think about that for a second. <laughs> no, I mean the truth of the matter is, is that all birthrighting. I mean, the, the word taglit means discovery, and I think that in general, the discovery that people have on this trip is both inward and outward. And one thing that we were, um, that we were, imp- that was impressed upon us about these about this trip for this year was the idea of contemporary Israel. That participants should look at Israel as not just relics and and archaeology, etc., but understand that Israel is a vibrant, high tech, very modern nation. And so there was that beautiful balance that we were able to um, expose our participants to that they really, really got. And I. I, I I applaud everyone who is, including, of course, Yael Tamari and everyone who is included in Birthright educationally, et cetera, from its inception to its curriculum, that they really um, make sure that every participant is getting that full piece. It's a wonderful staff, and it's a wonderful organization to be a part of. And you, too, out there in Radio Land can be a part of our (laughs) trips just by going to israelfreespirit.com forward slash Miriam. And uh, and just show us how many fans Miriam has out there, because she's definitely recommending that this is an awesome experience for all of you. I really, <laughs> I really do. Anyway, Rabbi Dave, I thank you so much for being on. I wish you a gemar chatimatova and too. a good gebenstior, as uh, as many as many say, including my husband, who likes to say it that way. And <laughs> um, I, I look forward to having you on again. Thank you so much. My pleasure. And I also look forward and see it over to you and to, and to Nachum and to everybody out there. Thanks so much, Rabbi Dave. Take care. You've been listening to That's Life on the Nachum Siegel stream. I am Miriam L. Wallach, joined by my second guest. Actually, I'd like to say that this is my first time I have a guest on from Seattle, Washington. I'd like to thank Dr. Maimon in advance for making himself available. Dr. Menachem Maimon is from Seattle, Washington. He is a native of Seattle, and he returned there with his wife and family to raise their family. He has a BA from YU in psychology and pre-health. He has a master's in public health from Columbia University, and he holds an MD from the University of Washington. And even after all of those years spent in formal education, he and his wife, Judy, have decided to pull their kids out of yeshiva and homeschool. Dr. Maimon, thanks for joining me. I'm happy to be with you this morning. <laughs> I don't know how happy you are to be with me, but I appreciate <laughs> I appreciate you being a participant. Thanks so much. So I, I spent some time on the Internet last night looking um, for different reasons beyond which what I understood um, just from my general knowledge and from talking with you and with your wife about why you decided to homeschool your children. And it really varied um, from what I found on the Internet from people for, for the different reasons that people decide to um, choose homeschooling versus a formal classroom education. So if you could give us a little bit of a background, because obviously as a person who very much values education, you can tell that by your bio, you did not come to this lightly. And this is not a, um, you know, just a trend kind of decision for you. This is obviously something you took very seriously. Sure, I can share uh, our own sort of journey of sorts. We um, have had our kids in a school here in the community that's a long-time day school, well-established, and we actually uh, are support supporters and supportive of the day school um, structure and intent. In fact, the school I... Uh, this school I attended when I was uh, going through my, my day school education. Uh, and we very much uh, 
it's very possible that in the future our kids will be back in the school. Uh, and this particular year, we chose uh, to do this because we actually identified homeschooling as a viable alternative, which I will be honest, many families in our situation may not see homeschooling as a viable alternative. Uh, some, some families have a, a natural bias against homeschooling. They may not know a lot about homeschooling and have perceptions uh, that may or may not be negative of homeschooling. Um, but we uh, happen to be in a situation that, that both the mom and dad can be involved in the education to a certain extent, uh, but we also will be tapping the resources and support of various uh, educators uh to supplement uh, our children's education now as well. So uh, that's the first statement that I will make, that uh, we identified as a viable alternative, and we're very much committed to our, our children's academic and education in general, and that would be both secular as well as Lumide Kodesh, and that is Judaic study. So you and your wife are both, let's say, partners in, edu- in this education, partners in the curriculum development, um, and implementers in your kids' education from this point on because it was all going on at home. And even you, with your um, your crazy work schedule, both as a pediatrician and in hospitals, et cetera, are somehow or another making time for this as well. Yes, we both are. And I will say that um, that's one of the trends. There, there are no articles um, in the Jewish media you can read about, uh, you know, that we're talking mostly about a Jewish audience here. Uh, but there are also non-Jewish families. Obviously, there's a, a higher number, a greater number of uh, non-Jewish families that are involved in homeschooling trends. Um, but th- there are, you know, a number of articles out there. A recent one, I think, in May by Rabbi Clapper talks about the moral cost uh, and issues of the current uh, paradigm of, of Jewish, Jewish, Jewish day school education. One of them is that increasingly due to the cost of education, both parents are, are sometimes forced to be um, in the workplace, uh, and they're both completely consumed uh, or very nearly completely consumed with their physical and their mental energy as well as their, their time is consumed by their profession, which leaves little time, if any, to be involved, in, whether it's the homework or really greater issues uh, in the education of their children. Uh, and we sometimes, unfortunately, may be abdicating the parents' primary role in the education of their children. Uh, and this, again, we identify this as a, a year we're taking off to do an experiment, uh, and we would not, you know, endeavor in this experiment if we did not think it would be uh, at least neutral, if not uh, beneficial, uh, have a net benefit effect uh, in terms of the impact of, on our children's education and, and upbringing. I don't think I appreciated until I sat there doing research last night just how many resources are really out there for parents who are looking to homeschool and the percentage of families who are turning to homeschool, both for familial reasons, um, for social reasons, and um, for financial reasons. One, one um, anecdote that I had read said, actually, I, sh- I didn't read this one. I had heard this one, was that this woman knew, ha- has a friend of hers who um, decided to homeschool her children because her children are overweight and struggling with their weight, and that's a family struggle that they have. And um, and there's been a tremendous amount of bullying, and she wasn't able to get the school 
to really work on behalf of her kids. And so she pulled them out and she's been homeschooling them. And when looking online last night, I found a number of, of anecdotes that were similar to that in terms of families. Again, this is not about religion. This was not, you know, a family's um, religious commitment was not mentioned on this website, but a number of anecdotes from parents who decided to pull their kids out simply because the bullying situation had become so out of hand that in order to, the word is not shelter, the word is to maintain their children's self-esteem, they pulled them out and are now having positive educational experiences in the home. Right. Listen, you know, it, it comes down to, uh, there's a lot of literature out there and some consulting paradigms that Jewish day schools, uh, it comes down to a lot to perceived value and perceived the cost-benefit ratio, right? So right. the perceived value of having your children at home and providing an education there can be greater than having them in a day school environment due to a number of different factors. That's one example of, a, you know, a, a child's own self-worth and, and, and their interactions when interactions at school. Another one would be, you know, a lot of children are in the day school environment, frankly, sometimes for social engineering. They want, we want our children to be around other Jewish children, you know, and, and that can be taken from a number of different angle, angles as well, whether it's observant families or less observant families. And, and some families want to have greater control about their children's social circles. Uh, that can also be about academics. What, what, what are the academics in my particular school? And, and you know, the other, other issue, to be frank, is, you know, they're at rates. You know, we, life is so busy these days, uh, and we are having our kids being programmed you know, for a dual curriculum from a very young age. Now, are there benefits to that? Is that we want the kids to be on a rat race? There are many different elements that get to perceived value. And really the task, you know, there's, there's three different educational stages, uh, well, four really. The first is elementary school. Some might call preschool a fifth. But preschool, elementary school, high school, college, and then beyond. And frankly, the bulk of my education has been in the beyond category. You know, hopefully most adults are lifelong learners. Right. Uh, but what are, what are the goals in each stage of education? And then, you know, there's this other concept, which is called tuition visibility by some. You know, when you, you, you commit yourself to being in the, in the, the Jewish day school, uh, Jewish high school, maybe Yeshiva University or um, Jewish um, baccalaureate environment, it's extremely costly. So if, if a family is going to be in a triage uh, state of mind where they can only afford, you know, if I'm looking at the long view, and if I, can, if I want to be able to afford a Jewish high school education, uh, which, to be frank, in some ways may have been the most important stage for me as a Jewish individual, uh, I might want to save my dollars um, from Jewish day school uh, and save them for Jewish high school and Jewish college education. Uh, and I'm not saying that was our, our primary uh, factor. There were a number of different factors that weighed into our, our uh, decision. Uh, but there are many different elements that go into these kind of decisions. Are you concerned that, um, that post this year, if you continue to homeschool your kids, and this year is not so much an experiment as, let's say, the beginning of a, a formal decision that you make for long term, are you concerned about them getting into colleges or getting into high schools and looking to that you know, and um, having schools assess what you've done at home? Uh, I'd have to say no, um, and there's a couple of reasons for that. Number one, Washington State, uh, out here in the Pacific Northwest, 
um, has a quite a robust homeschooling environment. Uh, and in terms of educational requirements, they're, they're quite explicit um, in terms of what, what is needed. But there's literature out there in terms of academic success of homeschoolers versus children that go through a traditional schooling environment and structure. And again, the trick is if you can get your children to be self-learners where, you know, even in starting in middle school and high school, there's, there is data out there that, that they are capable uh, of guiding their own education and beginning to find success. And, and I think that's what it's really all about is how do we, how do we want our children to, to find the success that they want to find and, and how do we get them the important skills for them to achieve success and possibly be able to pivot right, and, and, and maybe change directions if they feel they need to, much as some people in the collegiate and, and, and post-baccalaureate environment do, how are we preparing our children to have a successful life? Uh, and, and work and academics are certainly only a part of, of a successful life, but, but certainly we want them to have a strong knowledge base and skills to, to, to support their success. You actually just mentioned something that I was that I was going to, you touched upon something I was going to bring up afterwards, which was that you do have the benefit of Washington State having a good percentage of families making the same decision that you have made. And while that is not the norm here in New York, um, it is not uncommon in Washington State for people to be homeschooling their kids. How true is that in the Orthodox community? Well, again, I, I can't speak to the direct numbers, but unless you've done some research on that, if there's a higher prevalence of homeschooling in Washington State, I, I'm not sure that that's a fact. Okay. Uh, but, but I will say that, um, you know, it, it, it's sort of like, you know, once you do something, I, I had knee surgery in the past couple years, and once I had, I was starting to share that with friends and family, out of the woodwork came people that, that, that also had knee surgery, it was quite a common procedure. So, too, with homeschooling, and you begin to hear different stories of different families that have done this for a year or two or that are doing that. And, again, like you spoke at the beginning, that there is a perception of homeschoolers that this is not something that so many mainstream families would ever concern or consider. Um, but I, I will say that uh, I forgot the original question, but I'm not sure there's a, higher, a greater prevalence in Washington State, um, but uh, we're meeting more and more families, uh, and uh, in terms of sometimes we get asked the question, well, will they be able to be socially adjusted? Will they be integrated back to the school system? Uh, I do not have great concerns when it comes to that, and, you know, that's something every parent needs to gauge with their own family. Right. No, it's funny. The reason I was asking is because one thing I had found out about last night, which is, again, something I did not know existed, was something called a homeschooling co-op in which families who have all decided to homeschool their children do group activities together, let's say once a month or a couple times a month, um, and share and, and basically homeschool each other's kids together in a bigger group in somebody's home, whether it's uh, doing a group activity together, one family, um, one activity, for example, was they were teaching a, um, they were doing a children's book. I the name of it escapes me now. Um, about a about a a mouse in France who who tests different kinds of foods. I guess akin to the movie Ratatouille. And um, as a result, they they make him like a food tester. And so in this case, what these families did as part of this family homeschooling co-op was that they read the book one day, they learned different French songs another day, and then all of these kids together, ranging in ages from three 
till I think it was I think it was 13 sat around the dining room table of one of the families and there must have been a good let's say 10 or 11 kids there and they had a chart um, of different different facial expressions the equivalents of like a pain scale in a doctor's office and they let the kids try about 10 or 12 different kinds of cheese as part of this um, as part of this greater unit. And so every kid was able to participate at his or her own level because they were articulating how they felt about the cheese. Plus, they were circling the picture, which every kid could do. And I thought it was such a great opportunity for families who are like-minded, who are all homeschooling, to really get together and collaborate. So I was wondering if there were other families in the neighborhood that you've been able to connect with, with that, um, that you can share these or have similar kind of opportunities. Right, so we're beginning to, to to meet some other families, um, but I will say, um, I will say this in addition, and looking, sort of taking this uh, concept from a bit of a different angle. Much like often a father may not be familiar with changing the diaper on a regular basis, right, or getting their children dressed until they have their first child and they begin to do that, right? right. And much like a mother is much more familiar with those intricacies of their children's personality, possibly because they do those kind of uh, tasks on a more regular basis. Some fathers, once they begin to do that, realize, wow, this is a rich way of getting to know my children. Right. Well, so too with homeschooling, the, the cre- you know, creativity, is, the sky's the limit when it comes to creativity and getting to know your children and, frankly, getting to know their own, your children's learning, learning styles, their strengths, their weaknesses, where they might need more support, but getting to know the books they're reading, teaching them little tricks, whether it's math, uh, arithmetic, multiplication, algebra, uh, probability as it applies in regular life, you know, it, 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 it's eye-opening. And I will tell you, with my background in medicine, I, I know that life can be short and unpredictable. So I will say so far in this, in this first month that we're very excited about the possibilities. It's another way to get to know our children better. It's another way, of course, that adds to the sleep deprivation in our lives. But every, every, all the time that my wife and I spend in terms of preparation and thinking of what's coming up tomorrow, in the next week, in the next month, what's on the horizon, those are things that are value-added that add greatly to the, the, the quality of life that we live with our children. And certainly, you know, every family has their own social priorities. So whether it's a family that really wants to restrict their social interactions of their children and their family, uh, you can pick and choose, and you can be as creative as you want with um, the education and the social um, development of your children is really an exciting opportunity. Well, but, but let me can I bring in one other topic? Absolutely. I, I will. I will say that this decision would not have come to the fore uh, if it was not due to three elements in terms of the interaction of day school, which again we are supporters of uh, in our school, and there are, there are three or four Jewish day schools in our city. Um, the, the particular day school that our children uh, um, and our family is most supportive of, there are, there are, there are short-term and there are, are long-term and there are medium-term issues that we feel need to be dealt with. And, and, and there may be some common themes with other schools, and I know many of the themes are common. One is communication with their parent body uh, and being really more responsive to the feedback of the family, mm. number one. Number two is... The, the tuition process in, in this day and age of, of very high tuition, you know, and how does a day school support their budget, um, 
it's critical to have a communication piece, but it's more important to have a realistic tuition policy that's transparent and based on an interaction in the families and the parent body. And for a day school not to be making unilateral decisions by themselves, but if they're committed and they should be committed, Jewish education is a common good that's accessible to the Jewish families that are interested in the community. And the third is spiraling budgets in Jewish education. And I know that it's expensive to run Jewish day schools, but if we leave the budget process only to the professionals within the Jewish educational system, I'm concerned about bias and and, I'm concerned about ever-spiraling budgets that are never going to be under control. So these are elements that we feel we know they're challenging, but the, the, the day school administration should not take it upon themselves to shoulder that burden, but rather open up the discussion to the community and involve the creativity, the knowledge, the resources, and, and, and everything that the community brings to the fore to support the, the, the mission of, uh, and values of, of Jewish education in the 21st century. Well, Dr. Maiman, I, I I wish I had another 20 minutes to talk to you because there were so many more questions I had, but I hope you'll join me on the air again in a couple of months so we can get an update as to how things are going. I know the first month has been successful. I wish you continued success, but I definitely hope you'll come back on in a couple months to give us an update. I'd be happy. Fantastic. Dr. Menachem Maiman from Seattle, Washington, thank you very much. Thank you. Have a good day. You too. You've been listening to That's Life on the Nachum Siegel stream. I am Miriam L. Wallach, and thank you for joining me. Let's go through the lineup for the rest of the day so you know what to expect and what not to miss. We have a full afternoon of programming for you right after That's Life. It's something to talk about with Randy Wartelski, where Randy tackles different topics every week. Then at 5 p.m., the OU presents the Jewish Jewish Reaction with Rabbi Steve Berg. Then immediately after that, it's the stunt show hosted this week by Mayor Ferdig. And you know what we say about the stunt show. You never know what you're going to get. The Thursday night extravaganza is on from 7 to 9, followed by an all-new presentation of the Book of Life with Charlie Harari. Because Charlie's show was trumped by Rosh Hashanah, we are airing his third episode tonight during his usual encore slot. Then the day closes with an hour of Jewish soul, as to be expected with Charlie Burnout. Join Nachum tomorrow morning from 6 to 9 a.m. as he hosts Jame in the AM live here on the stream at NachumSiegel.com. And jaminthem.org on 91.1 FM as well. He'll be joined by Malcolm Holmline as he is every Friday for the weekly update. Do not miss Saturday Night Seagull hosted by our one and only Avrami live here at 10 p.m. only on the stream at nachomsegel.com. And as you know, JM Sunday with Matis Weinguest is in full swing. Make sure to catch it Sundays from 7 to 9 only on the stream. The show last week was great. Please like his Facebook page as well as that of The Stunt Show and all other programs that we have on the stream. Let's all be friends. This show will be rebroadcast Sunday at 1 p.m. on NachumSiegel.com and jaminthem.org. Thanks to Avrami, my partner in crime at That's Life, to my guests, Rabbi Dave Felsenthal and Dr. Menachem Maiman. I leave you today with the wise studs, Bill Vavi. I wish everyone a ketivah and a good gabent tour. My best wishes that l'shana habab yushalayim habnuya is something that we live and we not just say. That's life, everybody. Easy and meaningful fast to all. Bye, guys. Ich kann nicht mehr
Let's go. 